Hi, everyone, and welcome to what is a very special episode of the Jason Vale podcast. Usually at this stage, of course, I'm asking where you're listening to this. Are you in the gym? Are you on an airplane? Are you traveling somewhere? Are you on a beach? However, I think it's safe to say, given the fact that actually I am recording this during the COVID-19 outbreak, I think it's safe to say, unless you're a key worker, you'll be very much in the house. Now, there is a saying, of course, there is a doctor in the house. And I am privileged to say that actually, as part of this podcast, we do indeed have a doctor in the house. My next guest, he is a cardiologist. He's a writer. He's a researcher, campaigner. He's a man on a mission to save lives a million at a time. The reason why I have him on, because this week I've seen him on several news bulletins. He's been getting some stick, I think, unnecessary. I think it's a conversation I feel that we do need to have. He is terming this as the elephant in the room, i.e. a subject that really has been brushed under the carpet, but one that I feel, and I know that he feels very strongly because he's been doing it on national television and in newspapers, writing incredible articles that needs to be brought to the forefront. And that is the link, essentially, between what we are putting into our mouths in terms of just diet, general, in health, and what we're seeing with current COVID-19. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Asim Malhotra. Welcome. Hi. Thank you, Jason. Lovely to be able to speak to you. Yeah, really nice to speak to you. It's funny because before I do any kind of podcast, I often put it out on social media and say who I'm going to be interviewing, some of the questions, do they have any questions? And an interesting thing happened because usually, because the podcast is normally like a show, like a Steve Wright in the afternoon, and we don't get into things that seriously, but we're in a crisis. We're in a serious zone. And it's interesting to see some of the questions already coming through, not questions, but I've had a few already this morning. Why are you having him on your show? I mean, this is an interesting thing. I mean, I followed your work for many, many years. I don't see genuinely anything controversial in what you are saying and what you're doing. So when you talk about, just for those that are new, maybe to you and your work, when you talk about the elephant in the room in this particular guise, what are you referring to? The elephant in the room, Jason, in this regard, is the fact that the mortality rates from COVID-19, clearly, you know, we're all affected by this global pandemic right now, seem to be significantly higher in people with diet-related diseases, um, which include conditions like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart disease, which is obviously my primary speciality. And that really is something that hasn't been discussed enough in the mainstream until certainly the last few days, which is, you know, I'm pleased to have had an opportunity to, to highlight that message because we really need to get on top of this issue, not just in the short term, we can talk about the science around how we can improve these risk factors very quickly, but also the fact we have failed, collectively failed, over a number of years, going well over a decade in terms of tackling the biggest threat to our health globally and certainly in the UK, which is obesity and its associated conditions. Again, multifactorial, but the most important factor with the data that we have is poor diet. And just to give you some perspective on that and for your listeners, Jason, a lot of people get quite shocked with this statistic, but it's estimated that poor diet globally is responsible for 11 million deaths per year. And if you add chronic disease to that, poor diet and chronic disease is basically responsible for more disease and death 
than physical inactivity, smoking and alcohol combined. So it is the biggest issue of our times, but unfortunately it does seem to be also an adverse prognostic risk factor for people dying from COVID-19. And you're also, I mean, I'm reading here as well, you mentioned the other day on, and actually I thought they gave you a good amount of time on Good Morning Britain. It's very unusual. I mean, when people are being interviewed in particular by what has become quite an aggressive Piers Morgan lately, and even Susanna Reid is becoming more of an attack journalist than asking questions. They gave you a nice amount of space. And actually I felt that they, they didn't attack you and that were willing to listen and we could actually hear your answers. And one of the things that struck me, which I didn't realize until I was watching the interview. I mean, you put there, obviously, that poor diets are responsible for 11 million deaths a year. And it's worth repeating that point again, because that number, when you think of potential COVID-19 deaths, you know, pale into insignificance, if you really weigh up those two things. But Absolutely. 10, but 10 times more likely, you're 10 times more likely to die from COVID-19 if you're overweight or obese. You're four times higher if you have diabetes and hyperglycemia. And Yet, obviously, I've, I've seen I've seen the attacks happen over the last few weeks when you've mentioned some of these things, that almost personal responsibility is taken out the window. The argument seems to be, well, this is indiscriminate. So when I read, well, this is indiscriminate. COVID-19 kills people that are a normal weight, have no underlying health conditions at all. And I remember I debated with somebody, I said, well, I mean, maybe you could come forward with this as well, but surely the same argument could be leveled with smoking in the sense that, not every person who smokes cigarettes their entire life will get lung cancer and die, but the vast, vast, vast majority will. We're talking about ratio here because the numbers of people dying of COVID-19 that are young, no underlying health conditions, that are pretty good body mass index and so on, presumably the numbers are very low compared to anything else, aren't they? Yeah, no, so it's, it's trying to make sense and, and dig through all the data, Jason. So I think there's a couple of issues here. One is that obesity really is a marker. So BMI, as you know, Jason, is quite a crude measure of health to some degree, although it is associated with increased risk of problems because it just looks at your height and weight. And when you look at the associated conditions with obesity, what is more useful and clinically helpful and more predictive of adverse health consequences is something called the metabolic syndrome. Now, let me just expand a little bit on this. So the real big issue in health is what we call chronic metabolic diseases, which include things like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, but also these chronic diseases linked to excess weight through waist circumference are also likely to be big factors even behind cancer and dementia. In fact, Alzheimer's, for example, there's been big debate about renaming Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes because a significant proportion of people, the majority of people, in fact, with type 2 diabetes at some point, end up with some sort of dementia, and Alzheimer's seems to be the big issue there. So all of these things seem to be rooted in, again, you know, things are multifactorial, but poor diet is a big one. And you're right, there are going to be people who have absolutely no explanation for why they suffer from COVID-19 and die in terms of their underlying background health. But that's medicine. I mean, I have treated and managed tens of thousands of patients in my almost 20-year career in the NHS. You know, I've operated on hundreds of people putting heart stents in, doing keyhole heart surgery. I've done diagnostic angiograms. And you do come across patients who have heart attacks. They're young, they're fit, they're lean, they're active, they've got good diets, and they have heart attacks. And you can never fully understand why. So this is just part and parcel of medicine. But you're absolutely right. You know, this is about degree of risk. And it's whether one, what is the awareness of that risk? And then 
as individuals and informing people in the public is about what you can do to reduce that risk significantly through those lifestyle changes. But also it's about sense of well-being. As you know, when people improve their health and their weight and all these metabolic risk factors, they also, it's not just about the, the potential long-term benefit, it's a short-term benefit in terms of sense of well-being. Now, just to come back to this issue about chronic metabolic disease, just to give some perspective on this, in America, and our uh, prevalence of obesity uh, and, and conditions like type 2 diabetes is quite similar to America, probably a little bit better, but not far off. Only one in eight Americans are estimated to be metabolically healthy which is pretty extraordinary. Wow. And our figures are likely similar. I haven't got specific data here, but it's likely quite similar. What does that mean? Well, there are five most important factors that are responsible for chronic metabolic disease, which leads to heart attacks and strokes, and probably also linked to dementia and cancer. And these are having normal blood pressure. So what the new criteria suggests, if your blood pressure is over 120 systolic or over 80 millimeters of mercury diastolic, that gives us one factor having an increased waist circumference, so not BMI, for men more than 102 centimeters, for women more than 88, having a cholesterol profile, not a high cholesterol, but a cholesterol profile that is abnormal um, and linked again to this underlying problem of what we call insulin resistance, which I'll expand on shortly, which is characterized by having either high blood triglycerides of greater than 1.7 millimoles per liter or a low good cholesterol, less than one millimole per liter. And last but not least, is having a blood glucose in the pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic range, so above 5.7. So metabolically healthy is really absence of all of these, and that is a small proportion of people, sadly now, probably in most of the Western world. So this is really the gold standard that we should be trying to move towards. For individuals, and I see that in my patients, and this is what I do, my interest is in reversing these risk factors for people and reducing their risk of heart attack, because also what's interesting is if you have three of those five factors, it, it constitutes metabolic syndrome. And that's where you have this tenfold increased risk from CDC data of mortality, likely, you know, because obviously the data is still evolving. So that's where that comes. Having three of those five factors is called metabolic syndrome. And as a cardiologist, that's particularly important to me because two thirds of people, 66% of people now who are admitted with heart attacks have metabolic syndrome. Wow. I've been saying it for about a year. I wrote an article last year and I always want to do a podcast. And this original podcast was going to be just me talking to the mic, essentially, because it seemed like a good time to bring this up without being attacked. Uh, I've always been of the opinion, ask not what the NHS can do for you, but what can you do for the NHS? And what I mean by that is going beyond banging a few drums and clapping your hands at 8 p.m. on a Thursday. Not that there's anything wrong with that, and I think it's very encouraging, and I think that with the current climate, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But surely it shouldn't be stay at home, protect the NHS. It should be protect yourself, protect the NHS. And why do you think people are so resistant or angry? They get very angry the very second that somebody would even remotely suggest that some of this may be in their hands. Not in every case, because they'll always come up with the Uncle Fred syndrome. And Uncle Fred, of course, smoked 60 cigarettes a day. He drank a bottle of scotch every day. He lived till he was 150, of course, because it's always exaggerated. And he never had a day's illness his entire life. So everybody clings to Uncle Fred as their one-man piece of market research, conveniently ignoring the millions <laughs> of people that are yeah. cut down in their prime because of what they put into their body. I also don't understand why 
it's very clear when it comes to a vehicle, to use a very old analogy, but it's very clear that if you do put diesel into a petrol car, it will splutter and not work very well. The human body is a bit more efficient than that. So it will take pretty much any fuel that we give it and do whatever it possibly can in order to survive. Survival's first, health comes second, of course. But inevitably, we will get symptoms of dis-ease, where we are at dis-ease with ourselves, and we will have some symptoms. But why do so many people, do you think, feel that actually it's not in their control? It doesn't matter what they eat. That's got nothing to do with it. It's all just hereditary. And actually, if there's an outside virus, there's nothing we can do about it. Why do you think they get so angry when even it's suggested? I think, you know, Jason, to be honest, uh, this is something I talk about in my lectures. We have an epidemic of misinformation. So we have an epidemic of misinformed doctors and misinformed patients. And this is rooted in a number of factors. So, you know, just going to the roots of it, and I'll come back to the individual sort of attacks or people who feel very vulnerable and, and sort of hit back at people who are trying to make public noise, such as myself, about tackling this problem. There are seven sins that contribute to this epidemic of misinformation. They are biased funding of research. So this is research that's funded because it's likely to be profitable, not beneficial for patients. Biased reporting in medical journals. Biased reporting in the media. Biased patient pamphlets. And also it's because of an inability amongst doctors and the public sometimes to comprehend health statistics. So when you combine all of these together, you know, they contribute to this epidemic of misinformation. So some of it is lack of knowledge, to answer your question specifically, as you said, you know, because people, you're right, there are people out there that somehow have been led to believe that diet isn't that important. And therefore, they will be misinformed by a lot of stuff that is through marketing for vested interests that want to sell you something. And they shape their beliefs about their health around that. And, you know, there's actually quite a lot of research and studies showing that, for example, people will buy foods based on the way they're marketed, not the nutritional value. So we've had this whole, as you know, over a number of years, a whole low fat movement. And a lot of these foods that people were buying because they thought was healthy was actually loaded with lots and lots of sugar and would have an opposite effect on their health. So there's a lack of knowledge. I think there's also understandably a sensitivity amongst a lot of people who suffer with weight issues because it's so prevalent now, Jason. You know, a quarter, well, in fact, 29% of UK adults are obese and 63% are overweight or obese. So that's a massive group of the population. And this affects NHS staff as well. More than half of NHS staff are also overweight or obese and about 62% of nurses specifically are overweight or obese. And that's because, and I've worked in this environment for a number of years, the food environment in hospitals is also pretty atrocious. So three quarters of food purchased in hospitals is unhealthy. So the root of it is the food environment and to actually tackle it. And I'm all for, you know, giving people, empowering people so they can exercise personal responsibility. But the problem is when it comes to our behavior, we kind of, how should I put it? We're swimming against the current, you know, and that makes it harder. So even if people, and I see many of my patients dramatically improve their health, one of the concerns I have is sustainability of it because the default option is still the unhealthy one. And they will end up potentially going back to the, you know, if we don't sort the food environment out, it just makes it easier. They're going to relapse. So until we sort that out. Yeah. And there's two, and there's twofold in that, I think. I mean, one is addiction. I studied addiction psychology way before I got involved in juicing. In fact, uh, for another podcast, another time is that I still to this day don't know how I became the juice guy, but anyway, that wasn't never meant to be. It was more about addiction psychology. 
And there's no question, of course, when we say, why do people get angry and fearful at the thought of having to change their diet in order to benefit themselves? It's fear, of course. All addiction is fear, the, the fear that they think that they can't enjoy themselves or cope with life in the same way without what they perceive to be a friend, crutch or pleasure. So you've got addiction side, obviously, laced within the refined fat, salt and sugar hitting the bliss point area. But then also conversely, which has happened this week, which you've really highlighted and been attacked for surprisingly. And I really didn't understand why you were attacked. Maybe they just didn't understand where you were coming from. Sorry, Jason, just expand on the attack bit. Is this just sort of social media trolls and stuff? I'm talking about silly. Yeah, I'm not talking about people. Actually, I mean, let's be fair here. When I say attacked, I am talking about the keyboard warrior idiots. And let's be honest. I mean, the vast majority. Social media trolls, basically. Yeah, Yeah, social media trolls. Sorry. Yeah, you're not actually, in in fairness, you're not. No, it's a really important point you make because... There is a lot of that stuff that I've had to experience and other people, you know, in a similar space have done over the years. And some of it is just from people who are, how should I put it, unsavory characters is probably the politest way to describe them. And some of it is actually coming from the very vested interests that feel threatened in terms of their profits. And they will be funding people, some of them anonymous, some of them are, you know, open scientists, but not declaring that they're getting money from you know, sugar industry, etc., who will then go on the attack against people like me with that of message course, because, because they feel threatened. Because some of it's doctor. I mean, I've seen some doctors on social media equally quoting some of your stuff and chastising it in ways that are completely unfair and actually just completely unbalanced. Um, and then you've got what I call the new Instagram experts, which most of the time I don't take a great deal of notice of, but one in particular, <laughs> yeah. one in particular is talking about ED eating disorders. And the irony seems to be completely lost on this particular person saying that you are encouraging eating disorders. In fact, you should be brought down because you're encouraging eating disorders when the whole purpose, everything behind everything that you do, from what I've read, uh, read your book as well and everything else, is the complete antithesis. It's to remove the eating disorders caused by essentially the chemicals that are being produced in food. And one of the examples this week, obviously, has been Krispy Kreme donuts and, 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 and dominoes. So at the time of recording, in case people are listening to this years in the future, it's hard to imagine now. But, you know, I am currently in Spain as I'm recording this. And I think Dr. Seem is in London. Are you in London as, as we're yes, recording yes, this? Yes, yes, I am. Um, yeah. So London has been on semi-lockdown. I'm talking about semi. We'll talk about lockdown in a second. In Spain, we've been on what I describe as real lockdown. There are various degrees of it. And I'll give you some example. We are now seven weeks in to lockdown here in Spain. And only up until two days ago was I allowed to even take my child out for a walk. You could take your dog out for a walk, but you can't take a child out for a walk. Some of this doesn't make any sense at all. But anyway, that's something else. But I see in the UK, you've got uh, Krispy Kreme. So we're, I think, five weeks in or four weeks in in the UK into uh, semi-lockdown. And of course, people are rightly so saying the NHS, they're front workers, look what they're risking. But you've got companies like Krispy Kreme who, I mean, it's phenomenal marketing. It's very clever. And those that don't see through it, you wonder why they haven't seen through it. And they just thought it was a nice gesture. There's more focus on the NHS than ever in our history at the moment, which is slightly unfair because we should have always given them a clap every week anyway before this. But we've got Krispy Kreme donuts 
and it's on social media everywhere. It's the biggest advertisement. I'm doing it myself. I'm talking about them too. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it now on this podcast. I'm giving them publicity. <laughs> um, and then, of course, Domino's doing the same thing. Aren't we doing something nice by delivering? Now, you made a comment along with people like Joanna Blythman, who put herself on the forefront. And, you know, she's put 15,000 donuts donated as a quote-unquote treat the NHS frontline workers produced copious publicity that money could never buy. Smiling staff posed on Twitter, holding up the boxes of these synthetic sugary confections. You said something similar in an article, which I actually agreed with. But then you've got the layperson going, come on, come on, these people need a treat. A donut didn't kill anyone. But surely you can argue the same that one cigarette a day didn't kill anyone either. The point is, it's the addictive nature of these things and the fact that we're linking them to reward. I think that's the biggest bugbear that I have. Have you, have you had some, have you had some backlash from this? Well, it's interesting. So, you know, I'm obviously a, a campaigner. I'm a public health advocate. For me, my primary motivation interest is to help as many people get healthy as possible through policy changes so that we can protect the NHS properly. I mean, this is what motivated my campaigning going back a decade because I was experiencing all this chronic stress on the system and tried to get the roots of it all. So just, you know, listeners to understand that's my primary motivation. But, you know, having studied this in great detail, and being one of the first people, certainly in the UK, to highlight that there was a problem with our sugar consumption, and also at the time faced so many attacks at that point. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, who's this guy saying excess sugar is bad for you, etc. He's a quack, etc. Now we've got policies involved, you know, including sugar drinks tax. So things do evolve and people do change. But you're absolutely right, Jason. The analogy with tobacco is a very good one because what many people won't know, and certainly people within the NHS, is that. This was straight from the corporate playbook. I would call it a dirty tricks playbook of big tobacco. So in the 30s and 40s, when more than half the population were smokers, adults, I mean, it's extraordinary to think about it now, more than half of people were smoking. You go everywhere, you know, you were smoking on airplanes, you know, in doctor's offices. When more than half people were smoking and there were certain initial concerns about adverse health effects of smoking, Big Tobacco then, as part of their kind of PR campaign, managed to get doctors in the 50s on advertisements because that would legitimize that these are fine. And companies like Krispy Kreme and Domino's are using that. Their company is there to make profit. But to be honest, they're absolutely, there's no goodwill involved in my view at all. This is purely a marketing stunt. And by legitimizing, you know, by getting NHS workers that are currently having a lot of attention on the moment, uh, and, and, and understandably so, this is just, it's brilliant PR. Unfortunately, I can assure you, if, you know, this is about empowering people with the knowledge, if those doctors and nurses were aware this is what's going on, they're being exploited in the middle of a beastly epidemic. And, you know, the fact that even NHS workers themselves have the same health problems, if they knew they were being deliberately exploited, I can promise you they would not be putting photographs up of them standing with Brisbane creams. They might as well, as you said, they might as well go up there and say, look, we've got this packet of cigarettes because you're right, you know, one donor will not kill you, one cigarette will not kill you. But over time, we know that these foods are ultimately the root cause of the chronic disease epidemic. And we shouldn't associate them with health in any way, with hospitals. So, yeah, of course. people. And it's funny treat. because you, you brought up cigarettes. And it's funny because you look back now at some of the adverts. I was a heavy smoker. I, mean, I used to smoke 20, 40 cigarettes every single day. I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up in the era wow. where when you went around somebody's house, there was always these almost marble encased cigarette holders with these massive marble lighters that was always on the table so that when you went round, you could just lift one up and everybody would offer them around. And we were in that situation. And the adverts at the time, of course, 
I remember one in particular was, you know, more doctors smoke camels than any other brand. You know, you, and you think, you look back now, you think that's crazy. But where you're going, and I believe this is true, we'll look back in 20, 30 years from now, and we will not believe that we are seeing doctors and nurses holding up Krispy Kremes. But actually, it's even worse because I went to Guy's Hospital years ago in London. I don't know if it's still there. You'd be able to clarify or not. But I couldn't believe that McDonald's was part of the building. It wasn't even just slightly to the side of it. It was almost as if they were renting. I think there's three Burger Kings in various hospitals around the UK. If you look at the quote-unquote food offering in hospitals. I often call it the ping, the ping diet. You wouldn't have heard that. I've just made it up. Uh, the, ping, <laughs> the ping diet in hospitals is, you know, whenever you hear a ping, then you know the food's ready. It's just microwaved ping stuff. You know, the World Health Organization at one point said that, you know, 85% of all lifestyle diseases are caused by what we do, what we put into our mouths essentially. Sure. And yet at the same time, they wouldn't look at that as a cure either. I mean, you know, changing your lifestyle might change a lifestyle disease. When it comes to lockdown, I just want to cover this base. Now, I've got a very strong view on this, and I'm sure I'll get hammered after this podcast. My genuine belief, and only future will tell us, but I believe that the side effects of lockdown will cause way more health problems than if lockdown hadn't happened. Now, I know it's a big statement. There's no way of me knowing that. I'm not in the medical profession. But what I do know is with childline calls going up by 700%, by 400% increase in domestic violence, by suicides going through the roof, by people losing their jobs, and the, the list can go on and on and on. Now, is this the only time that you can think of as a doctor that the side effects of a treatment have never been looked at before the treatment was rolled out. So what I'm trying to say is the, the COVID-19 virus, the treatment for this virus at the moment is lockdown because they've got no other treatment. So the treatment could be deemed as lockdown. The side effects that that will ultimately cause and is causing, that wasn't ever weighed up. Now, in your view, do you feel that a lockdown should have happened? Should it have happened to the extent that it has already happened, do you think that the COVID-19 virus would have gone in a natural curve as it has done in many countries that haven't locked down in a very similar directory? What would be your viewpoint on it? And presumably we're midway through this, so obviously hindsight would tell us a lot more, but your gut feeling at the moment on this whole lockdown issue? Jason, I think your point's very legitimate and there are many respectable people in this slightly polarised debate who are arguing that, that they are concerned that the deaths and harm from lockdown will be more than coronavirus itself. The reality, as you've said already, is we don't really know. And because it was a novel virus and there was predictions of without lockdown, potentially you know, 500,000, maybe a million people dying in the UK from COVID-19, that was part of the reason that drove the lockdown. But if you remember very early on, the main reason given by government for the lockdown was to protect the NHS from being overwhelmed. That was the primary reason. And it hasn't luckily been overwhelmed. We've managed to deal with it. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who are not coming in. There are obviously diagnosis and cancer treatments have been massively delayed. Heart attack admissions have reduced, which means people are probably having heart attacks at home rather than coming to hospital. Mm. So there is all these problems. And you can never ultimately, when they introduce lockdown, envisage exactly what's going to happen until it happens. 
But it's a very difficult one. I don't think there's a, a definitive answer. And, and part of the reason for that, going with a lockdown approach, Jason, was the uncertainty about the true infection fatality rate. So actually, how deadly is this virus? And comparisons have been made to the flu. So the flu mortality rate, so people who are infected with the flu, on average, about 0.1% of those people will die. So one in a 1,000. Now, things have evolved, and the data at the moment suggests that it's probably for COVID-19, something between 0.5 and maybe 0.7. But that's still a sevenfold increase. And, you know, if we predicted that with the current state of the NHS that it's in, even a bad flu season, you know, doubling mortality would have caused an overwhelming of the NHS. So from that purpose, I think the lockdown was the right one. But really, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's hindsight will tell us and in fact, hopefully help us predict and prepare better if and when the next pandemic occurs. And, and, but I think- and also, because this is a brand new virus and a brand new pandemic, although various strains of COVID have been around, but this particular strain, of course, is brand new. Now, there are some things that are floating around that now some people in the medical profession, some professors and so on are saying there is no evidence whatsoever. It was a figure plugged out of thin air. What I'm talking about there is social distancing. So the social distancing kind of obsession at the moment with two meters because my understanding which again from a very non-medical perspective which is why i'm glad you're here is that for things that i've read outdoors the chances of it transmitting outside in outside environment such as a football match Cheltenham festival whatever the case is if there's a degree of social distancing are far, 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 far lower than if you are inside an air-conditioned That's building. That's correct, Jason. Um, Absolutely correct. That it, That is circulating. Now, if you are in an air-conditioned building or just a heated building and it's circulating, just logically, and again, I've got nothing to go by with this, but my logic tells me that if I'm at a restaurant and I'm two meters away from certain people and the restaurant is now only a third open, which is what they're kind of suggesting is going to happen, which means that most businesses won't be able to open because a third open, you're not going to make any money and you're going to fold anyway. So that's not going to work. But if they do come in with this, you must be two meters away scenario from the tables. If it's in the air, which is what I gather it is, then if you're four meters away or six meters away, but you're in the same room and there's locked doors, isn't your chance of contracting it just as high as if you're next to them? I don't yeah, know. I genuinely don't theoretically, know. Theoretically, Jason, but no, it, it would fall to the floor. So that the two-meter rule is basically because if you cough or sneeze, the data suggests at that point, around two meters is where uh, that distance is a safe distance. And I think just to reassure people to some degree, I think obviously the, the doing it properly is important. It's better to be safe than sorry. But in terms of being near somebody who isn't coughing, for example, that risk is only really there if you are less than two meters for more than 15 minutes. But obviously that's a very difficult thing to, to implement. So it's best people to stick to two meters. I understand. Okay, the, well, that, the, well, that makes the, sense. That's, but, okay. but the circulation in the air conditioning, I'm sure that it's very possible that they, someone coughs or sneezes and it blows it in a further distance, for example. But it um, won't linger just in the air. It I will, see. It will, okay. fall, it will fall to the floor. And, and your view, because somebody said there was another professor that said that actually stays in the air for three hours. So that was all that. You know, there's various stuff that goes around all the time. Well, I'm that, not aware of that, Jason, but you know, and, I don't know if that, yeah. And, the, and the, it's very difficult for the layperson to really understand 
what to believe because obviously there are experts in this field and a bit like global warming, not all the experts agree. Face masks is one of those areas that seems to be incredibly confusing. So one minute you have somebody on Good Morning Britain, Dr. Hillary, a few months ago saying absolute waste of time, they don't do anything. And then recently you're saying it's a good idea to wear them and it's the same doctor. And you go, you go well, yeah, so the, the face mask thing, very, um, what's important about face masks is that it doesn't protect you as an individual from getting the virus because of these very tiny micro particles can travel through the face mask. But what it does is if you're infectious, it reduces the risk of you passing it on to someone else through breathing and coughing or whatever. So that's basically how it works. No, okay, um, no, I understand that. But do you think it's sometimes it's bringing out the worried, the worried obviously based on there's a lot of stuff going around. Unfortunately, in some ways we have the internet. You know, whenever I see somebody in a car by themselves with a face mask on, I almost want to take them off the electoral register because I almost want to say, you're in a car on your own. You've got a mask on. <laughs> I know, Jason, but I mean, I think it's just, you know, I can understand it's just a, a huge fear that's being created around this virus of death. And of course, people will do things that aren't necessarily based upon good evidence to make themselves feel more comfortable. And if that makes them more comfortable and isn't harming anyone else and it psychologically reduces their stress levels, then why not? And do you think there was any argument for, again, my, my brain goes off in all kinds of directions uh, most of the time in wrong ones, which is nice to have a debate. But when this first occurred, one of the things that I said to my partner at the time was, what I'm not understanding is shutting down everything. If this thing kills essentially 0.1% of the population, which is hard to know because, of course, there hasn't been enough testing it, done. It will probably be it, more than that. It'll probably be a lot more than that. But yeah, it, I mean, it, it, yeah. yeah, okay, no, I appreciate that. But it's hard to know if you tested everybody and you realize that actually it, instead of 80%, it's 90% that are asymptomatic from it, then it, it's very difficult to know at this moment in time. However, let's just based on the excess deaths in hospital are another kind of indirect guide that it is more lethal than the flu. Of course, I think, I, think, I, think, I think that's the key. I think that's the key marker. Um, I think it's definitely, uh, yeah. I think, I think there's no question that it is more lethal than the flu. I, I, I don't know to this point anybody's, um, well, there are some that are debating that I'm certainly not. There's no question they're not the same animal. The question would be is if it primarily and by a long way affects people with underlying health conditions and people of a certain age. Would there have been an argument at the very start of this that actually if we are going to effectively throw hundreds of billions of pounds at this and crash the economy, which is what's happened anyway, would have there been an argument to say, well, look, instead of isolating everybody, shutting down every airport, shutting down everything, that actually, why don't we isolate the people that are vulnerable, look after them, deliver them food, do whatever we need to do over the next 12 weeks, 10 weeks, whatever it is, but actually we just keep everything else going. And I, I don't know whether that was an argument. It seems strange that one of the first times ever in history is that we're isolating the healthy and the non-vulnerable. So I don't know. Was it ever an argument? Listen, I could well be talking out of my ass as usual. No, no, yeah, no, no. I'm just wondering if that's an argument. I think there is a reasonable argument there. Obviously, I wasn't involved in the discussions and meetings behind the scenes exactly how they came to these conclusions. But I think that they thought that that would not work or would be impractical. So it's better that everybody... And, and also, this is still at a stage, Jason, where... You know, the data has emerged, but, you know, where they weren't sure exactly how significantly this would affect other 
younger people and people with less problems. No, 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 I, pre- I appreciate that. But I do think all of that said, but, but I think your point is a valid one in terms of how the lockdown will be eased. And I think that may be one of the ways they will start is doing it by age and say, listen, if you're under 50, for example, all of those people get back to your jobs and work and obviously maintain the But it's funny, thing. isn't it? Because you can't just get, because there are too many contributing factors for that. So for example, my uncle, who's 76, who genuinely is fit as a butcher's dog, right? So this, you know, like, like this guy is unbelievably fit, perfect body mass index, looking great, you know, worked all of his life, everything else. And some 35 year olds that are the size of the Napa Valley that have type two diabetes. So you just go, just, be, just because they are below 50, it's so difficult. Listen, I do not envy the government at all. I don't, you know, and it's very easy for anybody to sit on their horse and say they should have done this. That's just a very hindsight approach. I'm just asking, I wonder in the future whether certain things might have been a better way forward or more logical to have a different approach than tanking the economy. Because I tell you what, one of the things that I, I have, I used to live in a council flat, one parent family, no brothers, no sisters, no father. I mean, literally, you know, we found a pound once and it was like, do we buy cigarettes or food with it? And this isn't the world's smallest violin. This is just how life was. We lived in a squat. We was on the street. I know what it's like to live in a tower block. I know what it's like when you're in that tower block on the 31st floor and there's four kids running around and you're there with maybe a partner that before lockdown you wish you'd finished with and now you're regretting it. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden the stress that that is having, that's very different to what I call some of the blue tick brigade in their ivory towers on Twitter saying, well, you know, they went through worse in the war. We've all just got to ride it out as they're lying down having their pina colada next to their swimming pool. And I think it's very easy to have two different opinions on whether we need to come out of lockdown sooner rather than later. The ones that are losing their jobs, the ones that have suicide packs, which happened only two days ago, a suicide pack that went wrong in the UK because it was the final straw, because in the end you couldn't see any future, the job had gone, this, that, and the other. So the argument of saving the economy versus saving lives, I think, is flawed because aren't they both saving lives? That's the whole point. It's just that how many lives do you save? Yeah, I agree, Jason. I think, again, we won't really be able to fully analyze the effects of this, even for maybe a few years to see exactly And also, And also, fi- final one, what do you think of this, because I thought of this as well. When it comes to normal medical drugs, I understand there's a level of collateral damage that is accepted, widely accepted in your profession. Would you agree with that? That pharmaceutical industry and so on, that actually in order for the greater good, in order to save more people, sometimes there will be during the testing phase and even beyond the testing phase, there will be a certain amount of people that will have adverse drug reactions that could potentially cause death in the long run, but ultimately it saves more lives than it kills. And that's called collateral damage. And I think it's very well known in the pharmaceutical industry and they talk about it quite a lot. When it came to COVID-19, the mere suggestion that Boris once had because he was trying to model the Swedish model at the time and then did a complete U-turn on it, but he alluded to on this morning television once talking about herd immunity which now seems to be a very dirty term but he was talking about herd immunity and he was alluding to the point that actually without saying it there may be an element of collateral damage but ultimately you know 70 percent of these people are going to die this year anyway so if we have herd immunity maybe this is the way forward and of course he got absolutely attacked for it but when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs it seems to be very well accepted. Nobody seems to question it. And I wonder why that same approach 
cannot be used here, as harsh as it is? Because of the unknowns, Jason, to be honest. As I said, you know, with those drugs that come from the trials, they have relatively reliable, although I'm one of the advocates for greater transparency with all of these things. I think a lot of the problems with these drugs is that they are trialed in very controlled circumstances with selected people. And then when you expand them out to the rest of the population, side effects do seem to be much more prevalent than what was published in the original paper. But there is more information, more reliable information already there before a drug then gets put on the market and then gets prescribed by doctors. In this situation, there was no one coming out and saying exactly this is what's going to happen. This is how many people are going to die. This is, there was none of that. It made sense, but there was no precision. And then it's about balancing it. Do we take the risk that half a million or a million people may die from a novel virus that is killing one in three people who get hospitalized with it? Or do we lock down, reduce its impact on the NHS reduce its spread, buy us more time, reduce hopefully its severity with time. And that's a very difficult decision. And and obviously different countries have adopted different measures. But one of the arguments is that, yeah, I, I can, that ultimately over that year, even if we were to get this peak, you know, say that we were overwhelmed in the NHS with a very high peak, that the total number of deaths wouldn't change anyway, because there's a very good chance that most of us at some point you're going to contract the virus because a vaccine is not going to be ready for probably a year and a half. So that's another argument that has been made, but these are ethical discussions. And um, and it'd be interesting you know, to see, won't it? Now, I take on all your points and they're incredibly valid. And it'd be interesting to see here in Spain, for argument's sake, where they have fully, 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 fully locked down. I mean, you can't go out. I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm right next to the ocean now. I'm not allowed in it. Not that COVID-19 lives in the sea, but still, never mind, there's some logic that I can't get my head around. But the point is they've locked down to such an extent that there would be, I would argue, there'd be no degree whatsoever of herd immunity or whatever you want to call it. So, I mean, it's hard to know again, but my gut reaction tells me the chances of a second peak in countries like this would be far greater than those in the UK that pretty much have a halfway house. I know it is locked down there, but compared to... Spain. I mean, you can go out and exercise. You can still do this. There's people on tubes. There's people on this. There's, you know, it's not the same um, as literally. You can't. Yeah, get I, I, I would. Ta- yeah, no, sure. I think that, that that's also an important. I think the problem is that we also have this, which has been highlighted with the number of deaths here. We're now on course to be that. I think we've already one of the highest in Europe in terms of death rates. May well be second in the world after the United States. Is again this problem of uh, huge prevalence of chronic disease and an aging population combined. And do you think there's an argument also with the words with and from? Are you on that kind of board? Because at the moment, from my understanding is that, you know, somebody, my mom unfortunately died of stage four lung cancer and so on. So she, in argument's sake, if she was around at this moment in time, and she was nearing the end, you know, essentially if she'd gone into hospital and chances of getting COVID-19 in hospital are probably far greater than anywhere else at the moment. And there was a little trace within her system. My understanding is no matter whether it was a slight contributing factor or it just happens to be in the bloodstream or as a major factor, it just goes down as a COVID death, period. I mean, some reporting has suggested that, Jason, but having worked and written out, God knows, lots of death certificates myself and been involved in people who have been ill, you have to make a clinical judgment about what the primary cause of death is. And it's sometimes not easy to do that. I take your point that you just said. I don't know how people in your profession constantly have to make so many different decisions all the time off the cuff and then go and see someone else. So do you think it's very unfair 
sometimes, including the governments in an equal position, that when you've got someone at the moment like Piers Morgan or whoever who are absolutely chastising and, and attacking the government and literally saying they've got blood on their hands and so on, do you think that's fair when it comes to a new virus when actually everybody's just trying to move with it and do whatever they can as best at the time? Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions being asked about the government, though. It's not just about the lockdown. It was one, um, the U-turn, the probably many deaths would have could have been prevented if there was a lockdown that was introduced earlier. But there's also issues about, I think, more importantly, lack of testing and PPE, because another issue with this, Jason, is that one of the reasons the lockdown is being extended, etc., is because we haven't had the adequate testing where you can isolate and therefore manage the situation much better. And then frontline healthcare staff haven't had their personal protective equipment, which probably would have protected many people from succumbing to the illness and dying. So these are sort of some of the other major issues, which I think Piers Morgan has done very well. But would you, but, but would you, but, but would you equally say, because it's very easy in your armchair studio to run a country from there. And, you know, I know I run a very small business. You start putting that out to the size of the NHS and everything else. So time, as always, is not on our side. And I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And I'm hoping you'll come back for a second wave of a podcast away from lockdown, just to talk in more general terms, because it isn't just now, about ask not what the NHS can do for you, but what you can do for the NHS. I saw what you did with uh, politicians like Tom Watson, but that's just the start of it. I'm fascinated by uh, your book as well that you've written. I want to talk all about that. Uh, those that don't know, The Poppy Diet, which I think is a fascinating read. And I do know, although that on some levels, obviously, when it comes down to certain elements of juicing or when it comes down to high protein or whatever, we might not see eye to eye on everything. But I think, and I could be wrong, but it's fair to say that actually the aim, the ultimate aim is the removal of white refined sugars, refined fats, the false advertising, and bringing people's ultimate body weight down so that they're in a better position to deal with anything that comes along. 100%, Jason. Absolutely. So, so listen, I thank you for your time. Thank you for all you're doing. I thank you for staying strong in amongst some of the naysayers that are out there. It really does require <laughs> uh, people like you to stay strong because you, you never shake. And I like that. That means that somebody you, that really does know and believes what they're saying. So look, you've probably got a billion other interviews to do today and I've taken way too much of your time. Uh, thank you very much indeed to Dr. Asif for, for your time and everything you do. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Mm-hmm.